You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. this out to let us know that you are here with us, to let us know how we can be praying for you. Church family, you already know, but I'm going to say it anyway. On the back is a place where you can be able to give us your prayer requests. We do believe in the power of prayer and that our Lord meets us as we call out to him as his people. Um, You may not know the Lord, um, but many of us in this room do. And it's on behalf of that that we would love to cry out and to petition our God for whatever requests that you may have to bring to him. So if that is something you would like for us to do, feel free to use this card to that end. Um, This does not have to be about prayer. It can also be about praise. Let us know uh, where God has met you and where God continues to bless you. I'm actually wearing a blessing from God. I don't know. Can you see my shoes? Can y'all see that? If you remember a sermon series a while ago, I told you I got some fake Jordans, but I got real Jordans now. Praise the Lord. The Lord does work, doesn't he? So how do we neighbor well in our society today? You know, one of my greatest desires for our church is to develop a trajectory of relationships that you see right here where we can understand um, where people are and then how to take them to the next level. Um, We want to have a theology. We want to have a praxis, if you will, um, at our church of taking people from being strangers to being neighbors to being friends to being visitors and then eventually becoming family as being fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When I talk about stranger, this is what I mean is simply I don't know you at all. So being under, understanding that many of us, even in this room right now, we would maybe like to call ourselves neighbor or maybe friend, but a lot of us, maybe we just, I don't know that person at all. It's, strangers are not just people who are um, people you don't know out in society. Strangers could be in the very vicinities that you um, go to every single day, be it the library or the seminary or the nursing home or the hospital. Um, strangers are all around us. Then you have this aspect of neighbor. Neighbor is this, you look familiar because I see you often, right? Um, you are a stranger who I see often is pretty much what a neighbor entails. A friend is, means that you're a trusted confidant in my life, someone who I can depend upon in my time of need. A visitor is someone that I'm willing to share my life with you. I'm willing to worship with you even on Sunday mornings. And then lastly, but definitely not least, is a family, is that you're looking and hoping in Jesus together. You're looking and hoping in Jesus together. You know, here's one of my favorite definitions. As we looked last week, we looked at the aspect of uh, the Samaritan, uh, the good Samaritan, looking at how he transformed a stranger into a neighbor. Today, we'll look at how um, Jesus takes a neighbor and turns her into a friend. Um, And one of my favorite definitions for being able to turn a neighbor into a friend is this, is that a neighbor is whom I choose to serve, but a friend is the one whom I'm allowed or allowing uh, to serve me. It's the person who I allow to serve me. Today we'll witness Jesus' attempt again in this great gospel-filled message in John chapter 4. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father God, we do thank you. Uh, We thank you that you truly um, have not left us where you met us. You saw us as a stranger, Father, far off from the righteousness of God. And Lord, you brought us and came near to bring us to be adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. God, we praise you for that. We thank you, God, that we were once a people who were marked by darkness, but now we are a people who are marked by light. What a wonderful gift it is to know you as both our God and King, our Father, and yet our Lord. Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us as we study your word, Pray that you will soften our hearts to hear and understand what thus says the Lord for your glory and for our good. As always, Father, take the little I have, make much of it, glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. In Tozer's great book, 
knowledge of the holy begins with this question, and you probably heard me say it before, but I think it's worth repeating this morning. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You know, this is one of the most important, if not the most important aspect of our Christian faith. The question is, how do we view God? So let me ask you, how do you view God? Is God for you or is God against you? Does God like you or does God love you? Does God actually enjoy taking care of you or is he just simply tolerating you? It's not just important to know how we view God. It's also good to consider how we understand God. Can God be known? And if so, does God desire to be known by you? Is God able to help you despite your many shortcomings and failures in this life? Beyond how do you view God and beyond how do you understand God, another question that we need to consider is can you trust God? Is God trustworthy? If God knew all your darkest fantasies and secrets, would he still be your God? In other words, church family, the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Can God be trusted? Can he be trusted? I love what Max Licato says about this. He says, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends, uh, he sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live wherever in the universe, and he chose your heart. And the Christmas gift he sent to you in Bethlehem, face it, friend, he's crazy about you. What does this mean, and why is this so important? Well, it simply means this. It means that God actually loves you. It means that God loves you. He doesn't just like you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. Our God actually loves you. It means that God is actually crazy about you and and more than willing to move anything or anyone in order to engage with you, which is simply be near to you. God loves you. In our story, we'll witness Jesus' unconditional love as he engages within a very difficult dialogue with a very unlikely person. We'll witness Jesus' love for one of the most despised and one of the most hated characters in the Bible, a Samaritan. But unlike last week, it's not a Samaritan man, it's a Samaritan woman. Now, before we go on, we need to remind ourselves, who are these Samaritans? Again, historically, the division between Jews and Samaritans were were intense. The Samaritans were known as being half-breeds, not fully Jewish, not fully Orthodox, not fully accepted. And to say that these two nationalities were enemies would truly be an understatement indeed. The Samaritans were the hated and despised enemies of the Jewish nation. Hence, Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman took place out of divine necessity. Meaning this, that Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman was not an occurrence of happenstance. It it was not an arbitrary meeting. Jesus' encounter with this woman was not an haphazard haphazard coincidence. How do I know that it was not all these things? Well, it's because of how Jesus chooses to engage with this woman. Notice with me that Jesus engages with this woman in four specific ways. He engages her despite her story, 
despite her suspicion, despite her shame, and despite her senility. Look at verses 1 through 8 to witness how Jesus engages her story. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he went to a town of Samaria near Sychar, near the prosperity that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus went out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Notice with me the similarities between Jesus and this woman. Both Jesus and this woman met with many, with many similarities. The first similarity that we see is this, is that they both were taking a break from the presence of their haters. They both were taking a break from the presence of their haters. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and discipling more disciples than John, he being Jesus, left Judea and went again to Galilee. Jesus was getting fed up with all of the talk about who he was and who he wasn't. So he decided to take a little bit of Sabbath, but he decided to Sabbath in a very unlikely place, that being near Samaritan near Jacob's well. Notice here in verse 6b, notice when this woman comes to the well. In my version of the Bible, it says it was about six in the evening. And listen, this was abnormal. Because a normal time to get water was early in the morning, not late in the evening, or as our text indicates, at noon. You may be wondering, why are there two different times mentioned about when this woman went to the water? Do they not know how to tell time? Well, in Roman time, they would define this time as being six in the evening. But in Jewish time, it would be defined as being at noon or 12 p.m., I love what the Life Application Study Bible says about this. It says, Wells were almost always located outside the city along the main road. Twice each day, morning and evening, women came to draw water. This woman came at about the sixth hour, meaning at noon. However, probably to avoid meeting people who knew her reputation. So not only did they meet taking a break from the presence of their haters, but they also meet in their weariness and their exhaustion. Notice with me 6b. It says, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. You know, there are a lot of things that excite me about the Bible, but this is one of the particular things that excite me about Jesus, is that Jesus, although God in flesh, he sometimes got tired. He sometimes got worn out. That even though he was God in the flesh, even though he was perfect, even though there was no imperfection known in his deity or in his person, the flesh caused him to have to rest sometimes. And it reminds us that although Jesus was fully divine, he was also fully human. Do you worship a God? that is fully divine and fully human? Not, not me, not, not your wife, not your daughter, not your parent. Do, do you worship a God that, that is fully divine and fully human, that Jesus Christ who could look to the tomb of Lazarus and cause him to literally resurrect from the dead is the same God who got weary and who needed to sleep and who needed to eat and who needed to cry. Do you worship a God who was fully divine and fully human? If not, I encourage you to look at your Bibles to reevaluate this question. And if 
that's not you. I think the Bible invites us to worship a God that is both and and not either or. Notice in verse 7a, the weariness of this woman. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, right? So not only were they taking a break from their haters, not only were they weary and exhausted, but notice also they were alone, needy, and in isolation. We see this with Jesus in verse 8. Jesus, uh, the Bible says this, give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Again, we see the isolation of this woman in verse 6b, the same verse. It was, again, about 6 in the evening. This helps us to understand that this woman's reputation preceded her. Thus, she arrived at the well later in the day, not expecting to be bothered by anyone, specifically the local women, but especially not a Jewish man. It's a good reminder for us, church, this morning that Jesus sees her at her lowest, yet he refuses to turn away from her. He sees her in her weariness. He sees her in her exhaustion. He sees her in her loneliness and in her isolation. He sees her in her reputation, but yet... Our Savior does not turn away. Why does Jesus not turn away from this woman? Well, I think the synopsis is really found in Scripture. The answer, look with me in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. As the author of Hebrews puts it this way, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Yes and amen. This past week, I had a great time of going to be with some brothers in Orlando, Florida. And uh, Friday night was kind of a it's, a, it's a cohort that I'm a part of called Leadership Collective. It's about five other pastors all over the country. We've been walking the last two years together in this cohort, learning and growing from one another. And on the first night, I had the bright idea of taking a card game that we often play on our staff team and even in CG groups called Say More. And if you know about that card game, you know that you'll get some simple questions like, what is your favorite color? Or is, is the Trinity really real or something like that? Or it's just these obscure questions. It's really great. I love them. As we were going through the questions, I really thought, that it was only going to last about maybe, you know, 20, 25 minutes. But two hours later, (laughs) as we were going through these questions, we started to unravel a lot of things and unearth things in, in the men's heart. And one of the things that unearthed was one of the men who had lost his son prematurely to SIDS disease, unfortunately. And he, we've been walking with him for quite a while And it got to a point where he, um, the room got kind of awkwardly silent because he was remembering his boy and remembering the loss of this little toddler who had passed away that he still loved and and cared for, obviously. And I'll never forget this moment. One of the other brothers around the table, he looked at him with tears in his eyes and he said, brother, he said, there's not a day that I don't go by not thinking about that little boy. He said, brother, there's not a day that I don't go by praying for him and praying for you and your family and the sorrow that you experience. It's one of the most beautiful moments I've ever seen in my life of someone seeing sorrow and seeing pain and and not turning away. Not saying, get over it. Not saying, why aren't you done mourning? But with tear-filled eyes and humble expression, he 
lamented with him, but he also entered in with him and joined him in his sorrow. He embodied for the first time, maybe I've seen in my life, of Romans, where Romans says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice, but we also should weep with those who weep. Brothers and sisters, that's what it looks like to see people at their lowest, to see people in their brokenness, in their sorrow, and not turning away, but entering in. See how Jesus enters this woman's story in verses 1 through 8. Look with me in verses 9 through 15 to witness how Jesus willingly engages her suspicious heart. It says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is so deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it from himself as did his father, his sons, and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water will give him, and it will become a well of spring, uh, a water of springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Notice with me that while there are many similarities between Jesus and this woman, let's identify some differences as well. Notice the most obvious difference between these two characters. There is a gender difference, right? Male versus female. There is an ethic and cultural difference, a Jew and a Samaritan. So much so that in verse 9, she asked the question, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink being a Samaritan woman? She asked him, and she puts this disclaimer on it, for Jews... Do not associate with Samaritans. Notice also the physical versus spiritual differences here. Notice how Jesus is talking about the water from, from within, but she's talking about water from a well. I love this because, again, it reminds us of the beauty and the mystery of our God. It reminds us of God being fully divine yet fully human. It reminds us the goodness of our God and how he's not intentional, how, excuse me, how he is intentional to entertain this woman's questions, doubts, and fears. And he's willing to go through many different obstacles in order to make it happen. Love what the layman's Bible commentary says about this. It says, in this dialogue, Jesus overcame several barriers. The discussion with Nicodemus was an with an orthodox male Jew. This discussion was with a Samaritan considered totally unorthodox and at best a half-caste person who was also female. The racial barrier was, was crossed since the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The gender barrier was overcome as men did not usually talk with women in public and the religious barrier fell as a Jew spoke with a Samaritan whose religion was considered suspect and incomplete by the Jews. The gospel regularly crosses the barriers people have erected between themselves. So what is Jesus' main objective here? Why is he so intentional with this woman? Well, Jesus' main objective is this. He desires to pursue a friendship with this woman. Some of you may be wondering, you know, looking at me funny. Why friendship? Love what Frederick Buckner says about friendship in his book, Whistling in the Dark. He says, these, he says, friends are people who make part of your life, be, excuse me, friends are people you make part of your life just because you feel like it. There are lots of other ways people get to be a part of each other's lives, like being related to each other, living near to each other, sharing some special passion with each other. But though all of these, any of those may be involved in a friendship, they are secondary to it. In other words, Jesus was trying to befriend her, and he was unwilling to allow anything to prohibit him from accomplishing this task. Jesus saw this woman as a friend and not as a project. Ray Ortland Jr. says something similar about this. He says, ultimately, 
Reality is not cold, dark, or blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes for us and infinite joy to offer us. And he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. How does Jesus pursue this friendship with this woman? How does Jesus pursue her as a friend? He does it with great boldness. Notice with me the boldness of Jesus. Notice with me how Jesus just enters into conversation and enters into different difficult situations and conversation with this woman. And the reason is this. The reason why he's willing to do that, because Jesus isn't afraid of rejection. And the reason why Jesus is not afraid of rejection is because his identity is so secure in God the Father. The best example of of seeing Jesus' identity being secure, in my opinion, one of the best, is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, where these words are written. It says, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon, and Sariot's son to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took on a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. That Jesus is not afraid of rejecting, rejection because he is secure in his identity with God. I think it behooves us to ask ourselves the same similar question. How, how secure are you in your identity with God before others? Where in your life are you scared of rejection of others? How does this fear handicap you from serving in the local church? What could it look like? Or what would it look like to walk with God in in his identity without fear and or rejection? If you are wondering how to answer that question, Jesus is the only example that God gives us to know what that means and what that entails. And just as Jesus willingly served his disciples, just as Jesus was willing to wash their dirty, filthy, nasty feet, and I don't mean that to point fun at them, but back in the day they were sandals, not shoes. So you can imagine as they went on the dusty roads in the Greco-Roman era, what things would come on their feet food, and other things that animals leave behind that I'm not going to mention right now. See, just as Jesus willingly served his disciples, we now see him serving this woman in the same way. He's willing to enter in because his identity is secure. Look with me in verses 16 through 20 as Jesus willingly enters her shame. He says, go and call your husband, she answered. You answer correctly. You have uh, correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. Excuse me, go call your husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true, sir, the woman replied. I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Notice with me. Jesus' direct approach with this woman. He asked her a question while knowing the answer himself. (laughs) Reminds me of Ezekiel 36 of God taking Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones and asking him the question, can these bones live? (laughs) Look with me at verses 16 through 18 with me. He says, go call your husband, she answered. 
You have uh, correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, this woman replied. (laughs) This, This causes us to have to stop and ask the question, why is Jesus trying to stir up trouble in this woman's life? I mean, why is Jesus, is is he just trying to get the tea of the day? What's going on? Why does Jesus have to press in so hard on this woman's life? Notice with me, though, it's not just about Jesus pushing in. What's happening here is that the very thing that she's trying to avoid is the very thing that Jesus is willing to acknowledge. The very thing that she's trying to avoid the very thing she's trying to hide away. The very reason that she goes to the well when no one else is there, Jesus already knows. (laughs) He already knows the answer. He already knows the remedy. Maybe this question wasn't about Jesus trying to get the tea. Maybe it was about Jesus letting this woman know that he already had the tea and it wasn't going to turn him away from her. Notice how she responds to Jesus' acknowledgement of her marital situation. This woman does what we all do when we're confronted with sin or we're confronted with our shame. We're confronted with the very thing that hurts us. She creates a distraction. (laughs) Notice with me in verses 19 through 20 where you see this. She says, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on these mountains, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. You see how sly this woman is? I like her. I think we would be friends if I was back in the day. She's very cunning, very sly. She's like, yeah, what you said was right. Hey, you must be a prophet. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Let me give you a theological debate so you you can talk about that and not about what's going on inside of my life. But don't we also do the same thing with God, right? When God touches on a spot that maybe is too sensitive or a friend asks a question that maybe you are not too comfortable with. Don't we do the same thing? We create distractions and diversions, right? Anything but that. <laughs> talk about the weather. Talk about sports, right? Talk about career. Talk about our children, right? But anything but what's really going on in my heart. This woman diverts the conversation from her promiscuous life to the proper place of worship. Why is she doing that? Well, she's doing that because she's walking in shame. So she inintentionally deflects her situation into another subject matter. First, she acknowledges Jesus as a prophet, and then she changes the subject to the appropriate place for worship. I think it's important for us not to just glance over this. What is shame? Right? Pastor James, you use this, this term over and over and over. What, what is shame? I love what um, Dr. Welch says in his book, Shame Interrupted. He, this is how he defines shame. Shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human or you are, uh, were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. And there are witnesses. Notice with me, the lie and the power of shame is simple. The lie and the power of shame is that I don't belong here. That is the lie. And that is the power. I don't belong here. This is a simple lie that fuels and empowers every other lie that we know. And it simply says this, I'm not, therefore I can't. I'm not, therefore I can't. And you fill in the blanks of what I'm not. I'm not pretty. So therefore, I can't get married. I'm not strong, so therefore, I can't compete. I'm not smart, 
Therefore, I can't good, good, great. Whatever it is, it's this aspect of shame that Satan has allowed us to place upon God's people. Why does Jesus press in? Well, he presses in because he knows something. He knows that shame heals best in the context of community. He knows that shame requires community to start the healing process. Listen, I I shared with you already about the Leaders Collective and what it's meant to me and how I've seen God move. But listen to me. This is a picture of me and my brothers. Uh, I'm there in the middle, if you don't know. Uh, There is Craig to, to... your right, my left. Uh, there's Craig, there's Big Mike, uh, there's me, there's the, the bishop himself, Elliot, um, there's my man Kev, my man Aaron, and then last but not least, my boy Ken. Uh, we both are from Michigan, so he, he's near and dear to my heart because he loves the Pistons as much as I do. He loves and hates the Pistons as much as I do. Let me, let me clarify that. Uh, but these are my brothers, and this is us going to, uh, my wife surprised us for my birthday. She sent us out to an a escape room, and we did escape. That's the proof of it. And the time above us, if you're curious, is 10 minutes. So listen, uh, that may not be great, but it was good for us. So uh, what do you do when you put six pastors in a room and riddles? Try to get out without sinning, I guess, you know, whatever, cussing or whatever it may be. Um, but that's what happened. No one cussed, I promise you. But listen, this is, this is, this is the, the beauty of what Jesus knows, that shame heals best in the context of community. And listen to me, all of us, we just met two years ago, and we've been walking together for the last two years. And listen, there's a lot of, in this picture behind these smiles, listen, there, there is dysfunctional marriages. There, there is loss of children. There, there are devious deacons and tricky trustees. Behind these smiles, there are mothers who've been lost. There's abuse and neglect by those who should have protected us, should have loved us. There's absentees of fathers, neglects of mothers. So what context is God putting you in? You know, one of the best things and beautiful things about community is that although it's hard, It's the means by which God has given us for us to hear his voice and to feel his presence. And the gift is not just through God's word. Yes and amen to God's word, but the gift is also through one another. That I can be a living embodiment. And just as my brother who was crying about losing his son and us all seeing him obviously in pain and sorrow, another brother courageously stepped up with tears in his eyes and said, listen, brother, I feel your pain. And although I can't heal it, although I can't rectify it, I am here with you in your pain. I am here with you to walk with you in your sorrow. And I am here to love you as Jesus would if he was standing in this place right here, right now. This is why shame heals best in the context of community. Love what Brown says in their book, Darling, um, Daring Greatly. It says this, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. Because shame is a social construct, it happens between two people. It also heals best between people. In other words, Jesus willingly entered this woman's controversial past in order to display his unconditional love for her. Why does Jesus willingly enter into her, our messy lives and our messy situations? Listen to what Tim Keller says about it. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us 
for any difficult life, any, any difficulty life can throw at us. Did you hear what he said? To be known is our greatest desire. To be known. And Jesus, in his kindness, is letting this woman know that I, lo- I know you, and yet I will continue to love you. Surprisingly enough, though, we're ultimately known by God, not through our life, but through our death. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, puts it this way. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise uh, God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it's the same death every time, death in Christ, the death of the old man at his call. At his call. Where do we see Jesus bidding this Samaritan's woman's life to die? We see it in verses 21 through 26 as he enters into her senility. Verse 21, verse 26 says this. It says, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Notice here, Jesus' refusal to be, to be started off course by in three specific ways. We see in verses 21 through 22 where Jesus clarified the condition for worship. This woman asks, he says here in, in the very end, he says, salvation is from the Jews. This aspect of the salvation of the Jews has two specific meanings. Number one, only through the Jewish Messiah would the whole world find salvation from God. Only through the Jewish Messiah would the whole world find salvation from God. And number two, it's a reference to God when he promised that Israel would be the means or the vehicle to bless the whole world. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God makes these declarative words to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Notice with me here with me that the location of worship is not as important as the attitude of the worshiper, of how we worship. Not only does Jesus clarify the condition for worship, next he clarifies the context of true worship. He says, an hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Notice here, I love this, that Jesus here in the very beginning, he teaches, he teaches us something very special about God. He says these, it with these words, God is spirit. Jesus here is teaching a systematic one seminar entitled The Nature of God. He's giving us an understanding of who God is. And here's the first lesson, that God is not a physical being limited to time and space. But God is present everywhere. He is omnipresent. And therefore, because we worship an omnipresent God, worship can be anywhere, at any time, at any place, in any situation. It's a beautiful reminder 
for us. That our worship matters to God. It's a beautiful reminder for us that it's not where we worship that matters, but it's whom we're worshiping and how we're worshiping that matters. Lastly, he takes the time to clarify the centrality of, of our worship. Look with me in verses 25 and 26. It says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Why does Jesus? I, I love this beautiful aspect of Jesus coming and, and revealing himself to this woman, but it leaves me with a question. And it probably should leave you with a question too. Why does Jesus so easily reveal himself to this Samaritan woman, but he is so coy with other Jewish leaders in Israel? Well, I think it's important to remember that our expectations of Jesus matters. It truly matters. You remember what I, the question we talked about in the very beginning from A.W. Tozer? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You see, here the Samaritans were not looking for a militaristic ruler, but they expected a Messiah. They expected a one who would be like a prophet and a teacher to them. Love what the layman's Bible commentary says about this. It says, he, Jesus, could make this direct reference to his identity in Samaria, though he could not have done so earlier in Judea or Galilee due to the messianic expectations in vogue there. This was his most direct assertion of messiahship, and it constituted a challenge to respond. How does Jesus help this woman to go from being a neighbor into being an actual friend? Well, he does so by entering her story. He does so by conquering her suspicion. He does so by loving her despite her shame. And he does so by walking with her in her senility. If the most important thing about the Christian faith is how do we view God, I think that the second most important aspect must be this. How does he view us? How does he view us? And there's a short passage of scripture that I go to often in my own life that I want to share with you. 1 Peter 2, 9, that reminds me of how God views me. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are, soldier in Carlisle, a people of his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Soldier in Carlisle, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had one time had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy through the precious blood of Christ. I wasn't going to end here, but I think that I need to, uh, I want to end with this quote. My wife and I, uh, we had family movie night because I was gone most of the week, and we got to watch a great movie called Aquila and the Bee. It's a great movie if you have not watched it. But in the movie, Lawrence Fishburne, Dr. Laramie, I believe that's his name in the movie, he's trying to get this, uh, this young girl, this African-American girl who comes from very hard and difficult circumstances to understand the potential that God has placed within her, and she just can't see it. So he reads this poem to her that I thought was just so adequate for our time today. He says this, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that others won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, 
We unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's a poem from Marianne Williamson in her book, A Return to Love. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray over um, our time today. I pray, God, that you remind us of who you are. Father, forgive us for not so easily forgetting who you are, your power, your majesty, your presence. God, I pray for those who are walking in shame even now. God, I pray that through the blood and presence of Christ that you would draw near to us in our shame as much as you did in the Samaritan woman. And you will let us know that you see it and yet you love us. That you will not be turned away from our shame, but you will walk with us. You will help us to grow through the understanding of your word as you renew our minds and strengthen our spirits. And you allow us to become more and more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Father, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Help us to continue to grow in the power and presence of you as our, as our true king and our true Lord. Give us hope to believe in areas that, Lord, we have forgotten to believe even today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Soldier and Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless.